Welcome to the Writing Westward Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today, we talk with Megan Kate Nelson about her new book, The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. Let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast and who produces it. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. For better or worse, it's a one-man operation with me, Brennan Rensink, playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, and everything else. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at BYU, neither of which roles trained me for the current task. But I do have a lot of fun doing this because I'm passionate about better understanding the North American West, the region I have called home for most of my life. In each Writing Westward episode, I have a conversation with writers of the region, academics, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, anyone authoring anything about the West. My goal is that these conversations will spark listeners' curiosity to dig in a bit more themselves and think differently about the peoples, histories, environments, ideas, and identities that make up the North American West or that we ascribe to the region. Please leave reviews or comments on whatever platform you are listening and let me know if we're succeeding. For updates or communication, please follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find all episodes on our website, writingwestward.org, or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or most all major podcast distribution platforms, apps, and services. To learn more about the BYU Red Center, stay tuned, and at the end of the episode, I'll offer some additional information about our projects, programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research, and events. Find the center at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. For more regular updates, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at BYU Red Center. Now, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Megan Kate Nelson is a writer and historian of the American Civil War, American West, popular culture, and the 19th century more broadly. She earned a BA in History and Literature from Harvard and a PhD in American Studies from the University of Iowa. She has taught on those topics at Texas Tech, Cal State Fullerton, Harvard, and Brown. She has written extensively in academic and public venues, and her previous books include Trembling Earth, A Cultural History of the Okefenokee Swamp in 2005, and Ruin Nation, Destruction in the American Civil War in 2012. Today we are discussing her new book, The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West, being published next week by Scribner. The Three-Cornered War is written in a fluid narrative style, with most chapters presented from the perspective of individual historical figures. This makes the text delightfully readable. It is academic, rigorous history, but disguised almost as a novel. The book unfolds in the American Southwest, pulling our gaze of the Civil War away from eastern battlefields. In New Mexico and Arizona, Nelson explores the interconnected actions of the Confederacy, the Union, and sovereign Native peoples, each group projecting conflicting plans and desires for the region. For the Union and Confederacy, their actions in the Southwest were about empire and the westward expansion of either free soil and free labor for the North or slave economies for the South. For Native peoples, the conflict was in defense of homelands and resources, and in defiance against growing American empires and ambitions. So while most Civil War battles were in the East, they were fought because of the West, and competing aspirations projected there. 
When the Union and Confederate conflict ends in the Southwest, Nelson smartly continues to follow the story as Union warfare in the region does not cease, but instead shifts back to Native peoples. This again reminds us that in the Southwest and elsewhere, the Civil War was more complex than a simple North-South conflict. It was expansionist and imperial in origin, and continental in scope. Megan Kate Nelson, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Brendan. It's great to be here. The book uh, should be coming out next week, and I know you're excited to uh, get it out there, and I think everyone else should be excited to read it as well, so congratulations. Thank you so much. It is really exciting. All the all the run-up is exciting, but it's always nice to have the book out there and in people's hands. Yes. Well, I wanted to start by taking a broad brush. Uh, I think a lot of listeners of the podcast are probably familiar with Western history and are probably maybe familiar with some Civil War history as well. I think most Americans are. But could you take a moment and talk to us about how Civil War historians have traditionally dealt with the West? Sure, of course. And and this is where I'm coming from primarily from Civil War studies, um, uh, even though obviously this is a book about the West. So I've just recently kind of come into uh, Western history as a field and and the Western Historical Society as a community. And you all have really welcomed me, which is wonderful. Um, and what's interesting about it is that Civil War history you know, with its focus on military and then social and political history is really, really focused on the Eastern theater. A lot of attention to Virginia, a lot of attention to Georgia and South Carolina, and of course, Gettysburg, sort of big Northern moment. Um, but because of that, there hasn't really been a lot of attention to anywhere kind of West of there. There's been some work on the Trans-Mississippi West. And part of the problem has been that that most Civil War historians refer to that region as the West, right? So one of, one of the problems is that people think, well, what could be West of the West? Um, and so part of it is kind of terminology. Part of it is historiography. I mean, even to the extent that in most Civil War books, when they have the map, you know, that says like the seat of war, mm -hmm. 1861 to 65, that map cuts off at kind of West Texas. Yeah. Almost, almost exactly the 100th meridian, which is the Eastern border of the West. <laughs> so we, so when, when people, you know, read Civil War history and also when they teach it and then when they go to research their own projects, there's this idea that 40% of the landmass just doesn't even exist during the war, which is crazy, especially considering that when we talk about the 1840s and 50s and the run up to the war and the reasons for the rise of sectionalism, the West is everywhere. It's all about you the know? West. Yes, it's all about the West. And, you know, it's about the Mexican-American War. It's about the, the land session. It's about the Gadsden Purchase lands. It's about the expansion of slavery into the Western territories and who will get to decide the fate of this enormous region. And then suddenly Civil War historians, a lot of them until recently, just sort of once more Sumter happens, it's like the West doesn't even exist at all, but nobody's thinking about it at all. Uh, and that's just wrong. <laughs> so um, 
Throughout this whole process of researching and writing The Three-Cornered War, I have never argued that the Far West is the most important theater of the war or the most pivotal theater of the war. Um, I have always argued that we need to think about the West in order to understand the Civil War in the fullest possible way, uh, that, that this really was a conflict that was continental. And that, that not only were there battles in the West involving a lot of different communities, but people in the East were thinking about the West and the role of the West kind of in the future of the Union and the Confederacy. And we need to think about that because it gives us a sort of broad sense of the Civil War. And it also uncovers, I think, some elements of the war that people haven't thought about before. I think it also serves the important purpose of stitching the Civil War together with broader issues that were ongoing. War against Native peoples, both before and after the Civil War, it's all part of the same project of expansion and empire. So right. some, sometimes when we have Civil War histories, we, we carve that out of the context in which it was unfolding, and we really then miss the point. Exactly. Yes. And I think what's interesting from the Western history side, it's also been a bit of a blank, right? Like, Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the flip of this? How have Western historians yeah. dealt with the Civil War? I mean, most of the time, if you have a broader kind of 19th century history of either indigenous communities or specific places in the West or um, mining or some things like that, you kind of have a, an 1840s, 1850s moment, and then it kind of jumps <laughs> and and then we have an 1870s and 80s moment, you know, with the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad kind of moving forward. So, again, it appears or, you know, you'll have just a couple, maybe a couple paragraphs that address the Civil War, but not anything, you know, that really digs down. And I'm not really sure exactly why that is. I mean, it could be because. They're just not getting, you know, Western historians are not seeing any, you know, good content on the war in the West that they can use productively in their own work because Civil War historians have pretty much ignored it. Um, it also could be, you know, the West is a very diverse place and there are places in the West and, you know, this enormous region that experienced the Civil War, you know, pretty intensively. And then there are other places where there was really minimal contact. And so it may just seem a little overwhelming, I think, to make any kind of broader claims about the impact of the Civil War on the entire West, uh, mm -hmm. you know, within Western history, because that's a lot of work and it's a lot of work that hasn't yet been done. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think everyone is well intentioned. I don't think there's anyone out there who's saying uh, no, I'll absolutely, you know, absolutely not study this region because it is unimportant, except for a handful of Civil War military stories. There, there's a few. <laughs> there are a few. <laughs> uh, yes, Gary Gallagher in particular uh, uh, objects to the recent focus on uh, not only the, the far west in the war, but um, the growing attention um, to indigenous communities and their involvement in warfare. It's unclear fully why, you know, I think it's a little bit of gatekeeping. Um, and it's also a misunderstanding, again, I think of of the arguments that those of us in this growing field are making, um, that this is an important thing to look at. Um, you know, we would never argue, obviously, it is the only place to look at. Um, but yeah. but my hope is that 
that this book can sort of help to bridge these two fields a little bit and kind of help people who who want to be studying these kinds of things, and especially the 1860s, in a lot of different places, and to just help them position that history uh, in their own work. I mean, in my own work, the one place I did see it as Western historian, we sometimes talk about kind of a military brain drain in the mm-hmm. West, where some of the best commanders are taken back east, leaving the Western militaries who are still engaged, patrolling the West, fighting Native peoples, protecting mining and settlements and so forth, are left sometimes with kind of the dregs. And it's where we get some of the you know most horrific things happening, like the Sand Creek Massacre and other things kind of happen within that context. But again, it's largely just discussed as that the Civil War took these people away to go off and to do the Civil War right. over there in the East. And some things still happen in the West. But I think that we need to recontextualize those things happening in the West as part of the Civil War. They can be blended together a lot more. Yes, absolutely. So you think that that your book is going to hopefully help provide a framework or a way for people to think about some of these things together? Yeah, I mean, that is my hope. I mean, the the focus on the book is predominantly on the Southwest, on, you know, most of the action takes place in New Mexico territory and then what would become Arizona uh, and Texas and Colorado and California. Uh, but I make the argument in the book that this is really – the, both the Union and the Confederacy considered the Southwest, the Southwest a, a sort of gateway to the larger West. Um, but there is so much more work to be done um, in all of these other areas in the far West um, to consider the conflict from those points of view and to think about, you know, something something very simple, like the fact that there was a Colorado gold rush in 1859 meant that there were thousands of young men of military age perfectly positioned to sign up for the Union Army uh, and march southward uh, into New Mexico territory to defend to defend it from the Confederate invasion. And so that, you know, the mining story and the migration story, those are very classic Western stories um, that have been, you know, written about and also complicated in really interesting ways uh, in the in the past couple of decades. Um, but no one ever really talks about that particular element, that 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 this movement is actually part of why the union is successful in taking the West and keeping control of it uh, in the midst of that Confederate campaign. Well, let's talk about your title, The Three-Cornered War. You're weaving together a really complex set of stories of Confederates, the Union, Native peoples, but all this kind of on a landscape of interconnected uh, Southwest communities. Where do you get this phrase from? Can you tell us the source of the Three-Cornered War? Sure. It actually comes from a first California soldier who was marching from Los Angeles to the Rio Grande um, with James Carlton and the rest of the California column. And... In one of his reports, um, one of his letters, he called it a three-cornered war, that this is what we have here in this theater, that we have two different enemies that we're trying to fight on this front, uh, the Confederates and a whole range of Native peoples. So I thought that was a really great phrase. Did it jump off the page at you? It really did. It, It wasn't the original title for the book, actually, but the quote was always in the book. Uh, and always kind of in the in the prologue to help establish all of the the different 
kinds of communities that were involved here. And then actually it evolved that the three-cornered war actually has three different meanings in the book. Um, Union Confederate Native is the, the sort of big one, and that's, of course, part of the title, but also Anglo-Hispano Native. Mm-hmm. So here is, you know, the the West has the first multiracial army in the field, the first New Mexico um, volunteers. And that is, I think, significant in helping us think about uh, race and soldiering in the Civil War more broadly, because I think we're we're really because of the focus on the East. We think more about that as you know, black soldiers enlisting after the Emancipation Proclamation. And there's no attention to these other armies that are actually quite diverse in the field of battle much earlier. And then the third meaning is the North, the South and the West, that this is a book that is meant to to argue that the Civil War was about all three regions, not just about the North and the South. You chose a narrative style of prose to lay all this out. And there are a lot of approaches you could have taken because it's a mess of a story or a mess of (laughs) a bunch of stories. Yes. Why did you choose this narrative style approach? So when I was first thinking about how I was going to do this, because you're exactly right, this is very unwieldy. There are a lot of different communities engaged. There are huge expanses of the Western landscape involved. You know, a lot of these armies are marching 600 miles, 800 miles to get where they're going. Uh, and there are all these different places. And I wanted to convey all of that complexity. And I thought about a couple of different options. I thought about a straight up narrative history. I thought about maybe positioning it around these long marches. But then I was actually I always read a lot of novels. I've always been interested in literature. I was a history and literature major undergrad and American studies PhD. And so I'm always interested in the way that that fiction authors convey narrative. And at the time, I had been reading a lot of novels that had a multi-perspective approach. Mm -hmm. And I had also been reading Game of Thrones, which... (laughs) It lays its chapters out this way. It does. That was my first thought, yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> it does. And, and I mean, it's, it seems absurd, right? Because that, that book series, it's not the greatest literature ever written, but I was just devouring it, and I couldn't figure out why. And I said, why is George R. R. Martin, you know, how is he pulling me along? And how is he making this incredibly complicated story with hundreds of characters who are moving between, you know, 10, 15 different places. How is he making this even intelligible? And so I actually, I sat down and I mapped it out. I kind of looked at what he was doing and I said, oh my God, he is doing this exact thing. He is using multi-perspective to introduce you to a character in one chapter and then move to someone else. And then you'll come to that character again later. But it, and then sometimes in chapters, multiple characters will come together in one place. And I thought, that is genius. That is that is an amazing way to put the reader on the ground with specific people, give them a sort of granular sense of the moment and then keep them wanting more, you know, sort of propelling them along and and really getting them to to turn the page and to and I really wanted this book to be readable. Is that something we're supposed to do? I mean, I would hope we're supposed to write readable texts. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll make a note of that. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, here's my my whole pitch on this. So academic histories, as we well know, you know, I I've written them before and I'm very comfortable with this style. Um, yeah, there are a lot of beautiful writers in who write academic books. And the, but the thing about academic books is they're structured in a very specific way. Right. Uh, and this goes for essays, too. They follow the same general pattern. You have a sort of introduction with an atmospheric description and then you have an argument driven text. And in books, that means that you mostly have sometimes chronological, but usually thematic chapters and they can be excerpted like unto themselves because they make insular arguments, um, even though there are kind of threads running through the book. And that is great for academics and for students who are learning how to pick up arguments and how to identify evidence and historiographical debates. But it's not the best structure for reading. I mean, if you if you think about any, has there ever been any novel you've ever read that is structured like that? Well, it probably didn't sell well if someone tried to. <laughs> I know, exactly. So I was interested. Part of what I wanted to do with this book was to experiment with writing and to kind of push those boundaries and see what I could do with narrative while still, you know, all the, this is written like a novel, but all of the people are real people. All everything that they do and say is footnoted or rather endnoted. Um so it is it is based in research and it is a nonfiction book. But what I really want people to come away with, I want them to come away with the major arguments of the book and kind of knowing a little bit more about the conflict in this region. But I also want them to go away thinking, well, that was a really good read. Like I enjoyed reading that like that was compelling. Um, so, yeah, so I, I chose that structure. It was hard. I'm not going to lie. Um, I probably rewrote and reorganized part one, maybe almost 10 times just because I was trying to figure out the flow and what would be the best way to introduce all of these people. And, and where do you put all of the kind of tidbits, the like great little tidbits that we usually find as historians, little stories and things about them that we might want to know. So it was it was a challenge, but it was a really, really fun challenge. I felt very liberated um, writing this book from from the academic style. Well, it made it fun to read. And, and for the listeners, uh, the way it lays out is you'll open a chapter and the chapter will be the chapter title will just be the name of one of these figures. And there's nine primary historical figures around which the text revolves and it uses their perspective. So a chapter will start with Kit Carson and we get a little intimate moment. And then often it then zooms out and shows how he got to where he was and the things that were going on. And the very same story of this march or this battle is somewhat told through his perspective. And then the next chapter will dive into someone different, 30 miles away. Here's what was happening in Bill Davidson's life. And we then again zoom out and start moving through the narrative again. I think, I think it was really quite smartly done. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are, yeah. there are a couple of, cha- there are three chapters that do not bear the names of individuals. And those are. They're place based. They're, yeah, they're battle chapters. And so. One is Valverde, uh, one is Glorieta, and one is um, Seiyi, which is the Navajo word for Canyon de Chez. And 
I wanted to be able to bring together multiple voices in those chapters to give you a sense of what those battles and engagements were like on the ground from different perspectives. So um, because this is one of the other things that really surprised me when I started doing the research here is how often these people's paths crossed. You know, some of them had known each other before the war. Um, James Carlton and Kit Carson had served together in the 1850s in New Mexico. Uh, Louisa Camby um, had had sort of known Henry Sibley, who's not a main character in the book, but she had known him um, when her husband and Sibley had served together. So there are people who, who knew each other beforehand, but then so many of them either crossed paths directly or were in the same place at the same time during this period, it was really sort of astonishing. And so I wanted to be able to convey that as well, kind of how interconnected these communities were during this time. And it's interesting you should mention Kit Carson because Carson actually is the only protagonist without any named chapters. Oh, there wasn't a Carson one. No. Okay. But he pops up throughout. He does. he does. And that was deliberate. I mean, he's obviously an incredibly important figure. Uh, not only in the Battle of El Verde as the commander of the first New Mexico, but also especially in his campaigns against Mescalero Apaches and Navajos in 1863-64, also at the head of the first New Mexico. And so I needed him to be in there, but I resisted him because <laughs> he is such a mythic figure that yeah. I, did, I didn't want him to take over. And so my strategy was that I would just place him in the context of other people. And so he would have a voice, but the voices that would join his would be those uh, who were either his allies or those uh, directly engaging with him as enemies. Yeah. Well, by decentering some of these stories, instead of telling it through Kit Carson, as these stories have been told a mm-hmm. hundred times before, by decentering him a little bit, it does bring in a lot of different perspectives. He's not ignored, but. No. He, he's shown in multiple different contexts, which is valuable. Yes. And everybody, I mean, everybody knew him, knew of him. Yeah. Even there, he was a, a myth, mythological exactly. figure in the moment, right? His, exactly. You know, people stand in awe of him and they've heard these crazy things about him and so forth. Yes. And I think almost every character, or, yeah, I call them characters and protagonists, even though they're real people, but um, almost every single one of them talks about Kit Carson in some way yeah. or another and tries to meet him or just sees him from afar <laughs> or just hears rumors of him. I mean, the Confederates are actually quite intimidated by him too because of his mythic status. So, so that's why he kind of pops up in a lot of other people's chapters and then in these shared chapters. Uh, but I didn't want to give uh, the narrative over to him um, because I, yeah, I was afraid he was going to, to overwhelm it. Well, let's walk through some of the a broad survey of the chronology of events that you cover. Can you start us off with the Confederate invasion from Texas? So the summer of 1861 was sort of the first move. The Confederate invasion came in two phases. So the first was John Baylor and his rather small group of Second Texas Mounted Rifles, was about 300, 350 men. And Baylor had been tasked with taking uh, his regiment along uh, the road from San Antonio to El Paso and to take over all of the forts along the way that Union troops had abandoned. And so he garrisoned a bunch of, of guys there and he was supposed to wait 
uh, at Fort Bliss in El Paso for further orders. But as readers of the Three Cornered War will discover, John Baylor was not a man <laughs> to <He's> a <laughs> either follow orders or wait around. Um, he was extremely impatient. He was also super paranoid. And he had heard all these rumors that Union troops were coalescing along the Rio Grande, which they were. And he got nervous. And so and he was also quite ambitious. And so he took his men and just invaded New Mexico kind of by himself and succeeded uh, in occupying the town of Mesilla and forcing the surrender of troops at Fort Fillmore. And then two days later, sat down on August 1st, 1861 and created the Confederate territory of Arizona with named himself governor, named himself governor. Um, appointed some people um, to other jobs, to judgeships and such, um, and was basically single-handedly responsible for extending the western border of the Confederacy from West Texas to the Colorado River, to basically the California border. Um, yeah. yeah. So so that's the first thing that happens in the space of about a week in, in the summer of 1861. And so he, he established the foothold. He was the vanguard of, of Confederate Manifest Destiny. And he held it while Henry Sibley was bringing his Confederate Texans together in San Antonio. He built an army of about 3,000 men. They had a 3,000 animal beef herd. And they started uh, on the road to El Paso in a they had a kind of staggered start. And this was something that's very interesting. I'm an environmental historian. And so I'm really interested in the way that landscapes uh, and climate uh, topography shape warfare and the way that warfare shapes those places. And so uh, it was very interesting to me that one of the only good things that Sibley did in this campaign was to stagger his troops. He understood he had served in the West. Um, he was a professional soldier. He had served in the West and he knew that the water supplies were very few and far between in West Texas. And so he staggered everyone and kind of sent them out in smaller and smaller groups. So they were kind of strung out all along the road, the, the Sibley Brigade. Um, but most of them got to El Paso by Christmas of, or, yeah, uh, El Paso, um, by Christmas of 1861. And then they moved a little bit north, north of Mesilla in New Mexico, um, to another fort, uh, Fort Thorn, um, by January of 1862. Uh, then they, yeah. then they marched northward, um, engaged with Union troops at Valverde which is in about central New Mexico, uh, were successful in that battle for reasons we can talk about later if you want. Well, let's bring the Union down. So, Oh, right. Yes. As Baylor and Sibley are doing that, we have Union forces amassing in Santa Fe, groups coming down from Colorado. Yes. As, and they're hearing about, oh, my word, you know, the Confederates took Mesilla. There's more on the way. They're marching north. Yes. And... They all converge then in Valverde. How far south of Santa Fe and Albuquerque is Valverde? It's about 125 miles. Um, so significant. It was a significant march. It took uh, most of those companies, you know, five or six days to to march uh, from Santa Fe uh, to um, Fort Craig. And also, I mean, the the soldiers that you referenced being pulled from frontier forts, a lot of them were being pulled um, from forts west of the Rio Grande to this army um, of ERS Cambys, um, who was the, the Union commander in New Mexico. But he didn't really know if his men could fight. A lot of his volunteers were Hispano-New Mexicans who did not have any 
experience fighting, much like soldiers uh, in other theaters of the war. They had no idea what they were doing either, right? But um, they were defending their homeland against Texas invaders, which is a, a huge morale boost. And But because of that, Canby called, um, sent a note to the, the governor of Colorado Territory and asked him to send troops. So this is, um, at first it was only two companies, but then another um, large group called the Pikes Peakers kind of came down and in time for Glorietta. But so it was this really interesting, again, a multiracial army. It was Hispano and Anglo soldiers, volunteers, and some regulars. And then they also had native scouts and spies who um, Kit Carson had recruited. And so this, mm-hmm. this was an interesting mix. Um, but because of some interesting circumstances that, that readers can, can read about in the chapter on, Val, on Valverde, the Confederates won the day. And the Union troops kind of retreated to Fort Craig and, and stayed there. And so the Sibley Brigade moved northward. They took Albuquerque and then they took Santa Fe. So they became at that point and would continue to be throughout the war, the only army to take and occupy a capital of mm. a Union territory or state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then they tried to move again uh, northward because they needed supplies at Fort Union. They thought they were going to get supplies at Fort Craig, but that didn't happen. And that ended up being a huge disaster uh, for the Confederate Texans. But they they were marching on Fort Union, which is in northeastern New Mexico, kind of around uh, the, the kind of southernmost point of the Rockies and kind of heading north toward Denver. And they met in the field of battle this this large army of Colorado soldiers. Um, and they executed a flanking maneuver during the Battle of Glorieta and destroyed the Confederate wagon train. And this is one of the major points of the book. And this is this is Sibley's really big kind of area of mismanagement is that they relied entirely on that wagon train to behind them. Yeah. yeah, To feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to, um, you know, replenish their arms. They also had almost all of their animals back there. Uh, which the union set free. And if, if any, any of your listeners kind of have been in the desert, especially in the, the Southwestern desert, you can't hope to survive very long. There's no foraging for an army. <laughs> no, yeah. no. And, um, you know, there might be some agricultural field. There were agricultural fields along the Rio Grande, but other than that, there was nothing that they could use. It wasn't like the East, which was, you know, pretty much more densely populated and much more agricultural. Yeah. And so they were just, they were done at that point and had to retreat all the way from uh, the Glorieta battlefield back to Santa Fe, where they spent a couple of days recuperating. And then back. And then Back all the way. They went all the way. They took a little diversion through the mountains to try to escape the Union troops who were shadowing them. I mean, at one point, you relate that they're on opposite sides of the Rio Grande, just marching along inside of each other, going southward. What a bizarre scene. Yes. (laughs) And nobody, Union soldiers were irate. They wanted to cross the water and and have a battle. But uh, Canby was really smart about that because he knew He had a pretty intact supply line, which was the Santa Fe Trail, but he didn't have enough food to feed two armies. You know, even though these armies were small in the context of the Civil War, they're about kind of three to four thousand each. Um, The Union had more than the Confederacy. There is these were the largest armies that the Southwest had ever seen. In engaged in battles in one place ever. 
And the reason for that is that the desert cannot sustain that at all. And so it's, it's remarkable, actually, that the Sibley Brigade made it as far as they did. But then they had to, they marched all the way back to El Paso. They marched back into Texas and back to San Antonio. So all, to- yeah. all told, they marched about 2,000 miles in this kind of six-month time period, which is really... It's unbelievable. It's really incredible. Yeah. I mean, most of the time they were on horseback, but they did have some people on foot. And increasingly, they were on foot, especially during their retreat. So... So while that was happening, James Carlton was bringing his California column, which is about 2,000 men strong, from Los Angeles to the Rio Grande. They had been delayed by um, this six-week rainstorm in California called the Great Deluge. Uh, they had planned to start on the road in December, and they thought that they would be at the Rio Grande to help Camby with the Confederates by the spring, and they couldn't even start until March. And so they were very late coming and they didn't arrive on the Rio Grande until um, the summer, until July and August of 1862, when the Confederates were, I mean, there were a couple companies still around uh, as a rear guard, but mostly they were gone. So the, the Californians missed their chance to fight the Confederates. Uh, but as, as readers of the Three Cornered War will find out, then Carlton, who still had them for two more years of their enlistment, turned them toward Indian campaigns, toward yeah. uh, the fights with the Chiricahua Apaches and the Navajos. This is where I think your book makes a major contribution in that the Confederates are gone, and so we might just end this Civil War story, right? Right. But the Union Army is still there, and the Union Army is still engaged in warfare for the very same purposes that they had been engaged with the Confederates, mm-hmm. but against Native enemies. Yes. I really, really appreciate, again, the connecting of these stories and showing the continuity that the Indian Wars, the Civil War, it's all interconnected. It is. And I'm I'm glad that you uh, got that and that you appreciate it, because that was definitely part of my intent. And, you know, there there have been military historians who specialize in this theater, but they they pretty often end the story exactly as you said, with. The Sibley, you know, brigade marching back to Texas. Yeah, what stories are left to tell? The Confederates are gone. Right, exactly, exactly. So what I wanted to do is not only tell the story of the the campaigns to follow, but then also to integrate those stories into the war between the Union and the Confederacy, because Navajos and Apaches took advantage of this moment where these two armies were fighting each other on the road and they raided their wagon trains, they raided their camps. You try to imagine it from their perspective because raiding was part of their economy. And suddenly there are 6,000 men with mules and horses and gigantic beef herds just strung out on these roads all through the Southwest. And they had to come to water holes um, in order to survive. And so they were just as vulnerable as you could be uh, in this place um, to raiding. And Navajos and Apaches took advantage of that. They built up their animal herds during this phase of the war. And it, it got so bad, the Confederates, you know, issued Baylor on his last act uh, before he actually left uh, New Mexico in March of 1862 issued an Apache extermination order Mm -hmm. um, because he believed that that the Confederacy 
would not be able to win this war unless they exterminated or removed Apaches in particular from the road that went from Mesilla to Los Angeles, which went, you know, straight through Apacheria. And the Chiricahua Apaches had been particularly good at asserting their sovereignty and defending their territory um, from these, uh, from all kinds of people actually moving through it in the previous couple of years. And so he very clearly just said, you know, he sent orders to one of the Arizona guards a little further west, said, lure them into a parlay, give them whiskey if you need to, then kill all the men and enslave the women and the children. And Henry Sibley, in his report of the campaign, actually said it failed for a lot of different reasons, but but he did actually say it was the Navajos and Apaches who were attacking us constantly, who made it difficult for us to sustain ourselves on the road. So these commanders knew that in, indigenous groups in the area were causing problems for them that, that, that would have to be addressed fully. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to, to integrate that story into the story of the Civil War West even earlier, but then really focus on it uh, once Carleton took over the Department of New Mexico and launched these campaigns uh, against Apaches and Navajos. Another story you bring in as context here that is often left out is that of John A. Clark, who's the surveyor general mm-hmm. out in New Mexico. And you use him to demonstrate the Union's gaze on this landscape, and he's out there surveying it, uh, going through all these you know old Spanish land deed records and so forth, mm-hmm. but to survey the area for free soil, free labor expansion. And then later he goes even over into Arizona and is – scoping out mineral resources for prospecting or mining, which, again, is a story that needs to be contextualized in the fact that this is native land. And so Mm -hmm. the contest against native peoples isn't just because the natives are attacking our wagon trains, right? but it's that we need to engage in a war of subjugation so that we can take over this land. Exactly. I like how you brought him in to kind of bring that federal gaze and perspective of uh, why the Union was interested in dealing with native peoples. It's because of the land and resources that they wanted. Exactly. And John Clark is, I think, kind of the unexpected uh, power in this in this region. Um, he is one of the only people besides Juanita who is there from beginning to end. Uh, mm-hmm. He serves, I mean, he has some, some furloughs and he goes home for those, but he's appointed in 1861 and he continues as surveyor general through... 1868. So the entire course of the book, he is there. And you're exactly right. He's doing all of these things. He is trying to figure out all of the Mexican land session, um, you know, and land claim uh, issues so that, you know, he tries to learn Spanish in order to figure all of that out. And then he surveys a lot of different spaces. He surveys all down the Rio Grande. He surveys Bosque Redondo, which would later become uh, a just sort of hideous reservation and prison camp. And then he goes West and he does all of these surveys, not only of um, Chiricahua Apache territory after the Union Army um, kills Mangus Colorados, uh, and then also the Arizona Gold Territory. And he really is, he is the voice of, of the Lincoln administration in New Mexico. He's a loyal Republican and he is completely bought into the Republican platform of expansion and settlement in the West. And he is one of those movers. He's sort of this, uh, 
kind of agent of settler colonialism, basically. And he also provides all the documentation that justifies for Carleton and also for the War Department all of these campaigns of either extermination or forced removal. Um, those were kind of the two options as Carleton saw them in the Southwest. So he's, he's a little bit of a dark horse. I don't think no one knows him at all, right? They may have heard of kind of a couple of the other people, but even, even people who work on this period have, and in New Mexico have not really heard of John Clark, um, mm. which is why I was delighted to find him. His 27 volumes of diaries uh, oh, wow. are at uh, the Fray Angelico Chavez Library uh, in Santa Fe. But it's great because what he's doing, Indian campaigns are really expensive, but all of his work is proving to the union that uh, it's worth the investment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because here's what could be gained. Mm -hmm. Well, you follow this story then after the Confederates leave, you follow... Uh, again, Carson and Carleton and their pivot towards subjugating Native peoples, Apaches and Navajos. And eventually you follow the Navajo story all the way through Carson and Canyon de Chez, and then all the way through their removal to Bosque Redondo, uh, Manuelitos, uh, who is the, the husband of Juanita, another character you follow quite a bit, um, their resistance and their eventual move to Bosque Redondo. And then all the way to when they then are allowed to leave in 1868 and to go back uh, after signing a treaty, and they get to go back to their Navajo homelands. So it's that, that spins out quite a few chapters. Now, well beyond the traditional parameters of, this, of what we think of as civil war, I mean, I, I'm glad that you did, but I'm curious about why you decided to follow that story so far down the line. Well, I think that story, I mean, part of the project of, of looking at the Civil War from unexpected places, the sort of expansion of the geography is also simultaneously an expansion of chronology. And so we're really pushing at the boundaries and saying, why do, do we really need to only start things in April 1861 and end them in April 1865? Because for a lot of communities, the war had elements that were beginning before Fort Sumter and that continued long after Appomattox. And the reason that I, I I wanted to see it through to the end because it is such a remarkable story and it is such a pivotal moment in Navajo history, I think, and also in Western history and in the history of Union Indian policy as well. And the fact that Bosque Redondo was established kind of in, in 63, 64, became a total nightmare almost immediately um, because Carlton had not anticipated that so many Navajos would surrender. He was not prepared to feed and clothe more than 8,000 people. He thought at most two or 3,000 people maybe, but they didn't have good numbers on the, on the population. And so his tactic, which was very successful, which was to launch a hard war against Navajos and Mescalero Apaches to, to force them, you know, basically destroyed all of their crops, destroyed their winter Hogans and forced them into a really vulnerable state just as winter was coming and then to attack them in winter. That was extraordinarily successful. Militarily, this campaign was a huge success for Carlton and the Union Army. And he thought of the Navajos that he forced to surrender and then forcibly removed to Bosque Redondo and then kept at Bosque Redondo under surveillance and Union Army control. 
He thought about them and described them as prisoners and captives. And that did not change in April of 1865. Mm. They continued to be prisoners yeah, of war. Yes. And, and they continued to be under the control of the War Department. And that would change a little bit. There were fights about it. And ultimately, Carleton was kind of removed from command and transferred as part of that fight. And the Department of Interior took over in the very last couple months of, of Bosque Redondo's existence. But for the people in New Mexico and for Navajos and Mescalero Apaches who were, um, you know, sort of imprisoned at Bosque Redondo during this period, Appomattox didn't matter. Their situation did not change at all um, when the peace treaty was signed. I mean, people in Santa Fe celebrated, um, you know, there was a sense that, oh, good, now the war is over. But for the purposes of the union's kind of vision of settling the West with white farmers, that did not change. Um, some of their tactics may have changed a little bit because of Bosque Redondo, because of the it, you know, there were so many congressional investigations of that place uh, over the course of its existence. And finally, um, Navajos themselves were able to convince, of all people, William Tecumseh Sherman uh, yeah. to I know that that when I found that out, I was like, well, I didn't see that. <laughs> and I actually had to flip the page backwards because I. I started seeing Sherman and I was like, wait, did I miss, is this William Tecumseh? And yeah, it, sure enough. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, and so the fact that, you know, he's sort of in charge of this, this first, this element of the peace commission in its first iteration. And then, and that he actually is there at Bosque Redondo negotiating in it. First, he suggests to them, oh, well, we'll just send you to Indian territory because, the union had actually forced a land session from the the native peoples there who had fought for the Confederacy. They they got some land from them. And so they were going to put the Navajos there and they just, the Navajos refused. And they just said, you know what, <laughs> just send us back to our, we don't want to go anywhere if we're not going back to our homeland. And it was convincing yeah. to Sherman. And, and Sherman thought that, that, Perhaps the Department of Interior could make a reservation work um, in the Navajo homeland in the way that they had not uh, made it work at Bosque Redondo. Um, but, yeah, I mean, once once I found that out and found out how important a moment the signing of the treaty was, that it really was evidence of persistence and survival. And I wanted that to also be a theme of this last part of the book. Um, that even though the Union Army is really kind of exerting federal power, expanding its reach, um, trying to absorb, um, to take lands away from Native peoples and then absorb them in some sort of way into American society um, or just, you know, keep them sequestered, um, even though all of that was happening, that on the ground, um, Navajos were doing whatever they could to survive. And they were still maintaining a sense of themselves and a sense of their community and a strong desire to go back to their homeland. And they made it happen. You offer an epilogue. There's kind of a, you know, where are they now aspect here. You follow a few of these people and tell us what happened to them. Then you frame a lot of it around the 1869 completion of the Transcontinental Railroad mm -hmm. along the northern route and then the 1881 southern route. Why did you choose those two moments as a way to kind of frame this postscript? Well, one of the 
one of the important developments that happens as a result of the Union victory over the Confederates in the spring of 1862 is that the Republican Congress and the Lincoln administration are finally able to pass a number of measures that they had been wanting to pass in the 1850s but couldn't because of Southern resistance. And one of those um, measures was the Homestead Act, and the other one of the others was the Pacific Railway Act, and actually two of them in 62 and 64. And 62, the 62 measure, you know, famously uh, created the mechanisms through which the Transcontinental Railroad would be built um, and then completed in 1869. And so the Transcontinental Railroad exists because of the Civil War. And I think this this is the another one of these kind of major moments in American history where we there hasn't been a lot of connection to the Civil War in terms of its context and in terms of the war as a catalyst. So I was interested in that. And I was also interested because John Clark actually goes up and is the surveyor general of Utah. Um, for a year and is in Salt Lake um, when the Golden Spike ceremony happens. I, and I couldn't find yeah. out if he was actually, he didn't, um, I don't know where his diaries are for his, the period after New Mexico. They may be somewhere else. Um, but he left pretty quickly after that to go work for railroads um, in the Midwest. But he was obsessed with railroads and he was constantly talking about them and wanting to work for them um, during his final years in New Mexico. But he ended up kind of that close, which intrigued me <laughs> um, that that it's possible that maybe he went up um, uh, to Ogden and then to the to the site uh, to actually be a part of that. I don't know if he was, but when you look carefully at that famous photograph, see I know, spot, yeah. I know we'll be like, where's <laughs> we'll like do the super digital zoom and try and figure out yeah. and try and figure out if he was there. Um, but yeah, I, I thought of that as a moment that, you know, comes just a year after Navajos return um, to their homeland. And in the in the treaty, the U.S. Navajo Treaty of 1868, there is a provision that Navajos will not resist a railroad being put through their territory. And so it, it was very clear to me that this is the, the next this is part of the move um, to conquer the West is to build these railroads through it. And so the the first transcontinental is up there in the north, but then um, the southern route, which Jefferson Davis had been advocating for for forever, yeah. uh, finally gets built uh, in the early 1880s. But it is still, and I liked that moment because the Chiricahua Apaches are still a threat to that line. Yeah, as they're building yeah, it, yeah. Even that much later. So that just went to prove you know, my argument in the book that the, the Union Army's murder of Mangus Coloradus um, and the fact that his he was his body was beheaded after his death really launched this 20 year war between the U.S. government and the Chiricahua Apaches. And that was still ongoing, uh, even as they completed this southern transcontinental. Well, again, as I said before, I appreciate how this again reframes the Civil War not as just a war about slavery or nor about war about North versus South, but about it was a war of empire and expansion. This coda, you know, bringing out the railroads, again, brings it all together to show it was all part of a, a larger project. So I, again, as a Western historian, really appreciated that. Oh, good.
Well, we're about out of time. I appreciate you uh, spending an hour with us. Very grateful for uh, for the book and for the work, and I wish you all the luck in promoting it and getting the word out. I think it's going to be very well received. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. All right. Take care, Megan. Thank you so much. All right. You too, Brennan. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave a review on whatever app or platform you're using, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Wright Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and put that link in the episode description if you didn't catch it. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critiques my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. You can find out more on my website, bwrensink.org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. That's B-R-E-N-D-E-N-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K. One last plug, if you live in the Intermountain West, check out the Red Center's digital public history project, Intermountain Histories, by visiting intermountainhistories.org, or by downloading the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and mobile app, you can read carefully curated about complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Well, until next month, be well, be curious, be kind.